At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details, and you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas, you can taste the tahini, you can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire-roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. Once a product is really, really associated with women, men won't buy it. Coke Zero was developed because we needed a male alternative for Diet Coke, basically, because Diet Coke was a female beverage. So I think that other companies were, like, a little bit reticent at times, even if women liked their products, to, like, fully, fully, fully embrace um, being associated with, like, a very girly type of femininity. And Stanley said, well, if that's who wants our product, that's who we're marketing to. Come on, ladies. (laughs) This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Quick note here at the top that we have finalized my Anything's Possible book tour. These are live Sporkful tapings and book signings. It starts in New York City, where I'll be in conversation with Claire Saffitz, then Long Island with Top Chef star Gail Simmons, and then all over the country. I'm probably coming to somewhere near you. Get all the info at sporkful.com slash tour. Let's jump into it. Today, we are back with another salad spinner edition of The Sporkful. This is our rapid-fire roundtable discussion of the biggest, strangest, and most surprising food stories of the moment. It's a pretty southern salad spinner today. Joining me in The Spinner are two very special guests in Kinston, North Carolina. We have Vivian Howard, the award-winning cookbook author, TV host, chef, and restaurateur. Hello, Vivian. Hi. And while she may be living in Brooklyn, I get the impression that her heart is still in Georgia She's returning to the salad spinner. Amanda Mull is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers culture, health, and consumerism. Welcome back, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me back. Am I right that your heart's still in Georgia? Absolutely. Go okay. dogs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now we're going to spin the salad spinner in just a minute. But first, I want to catch up with you a little bit, Vivian, because we had you on the show last year for an episode we called Should Fine Dining Exist? Now, at that time, you had recently closed your fine dining restaurant, Chef and the Farmer, because it was just unsustainable. And you said you wanted to reopen it, but you had to figure out a new way to approach fine dining. And then this past November, you did reopen it and rebrand it as the kitchen bar at Chef and the Farmer. So what is that? And how's it going? I didn't want to just redo the thing that I was doing that did not work for me then. So I decided that I was going to open the kitchen bar once a month on the weekends, Friday and Saturday for two seatings each night. It's a high ticket price, $300 per person, but I have enjoyed it immensely. It's a new menu each time. I get to like talk and engage with the people that are coming there to do just that. So it's one weekend a month, Friday and Saturday. Yep. (laughs) So two nights per month, you're serving food in the restaurant. Yes. And I know that sounds crazy, but, you know, based on price point and the overhead, I get to do the things that I love to do in the food space, which is like develop menus, prep, see it from beginning to end, like engage with customers, cook with people that I know and trust. And so I feel like with this model, people get exactly what they pay for and more. It's like, I don't know, it's dinner and a 
Vivian Howard show. It's almost like coming to your house for dinner. Yeah, it feels like a, a a really special curated dinner party, if I'm being honest. Well, that does sound really nice. I want to go to that dinner party. And I'm happy to hear that, Vivian, because the last time we spoke, you sort of talked about how cooking was something that had always brought you such joy and running a fine dining restaurant had basically taken all that joy away. So I'm glad that you've been able to reopen and and find that joy again. Anyway, enough chit chat. It's time to spin the salad spinner. All right, for our first story, we're going to start with a TikTok that went viral recently. The video is super short, like 14 seconds. So I'll just set the scene first. So a woman is filming her car. She's got like this red Kia, and it's basically been destroyed in a fire. The seats are all burnt up. The steering wheel's half melted. There's ash and debris everywhere. She brings her camera into the car and zooms in on the cup holder, and there's a Stanley water bottle in the cup holder. Everybody's so concerned about if the Stanley... But what about She picks it up and shakes the Stanley and she says, there's a fire yesterday, it still has ice in it. So this Stanley bottle survived the fire and kept the ice in the water bottle as ice. And Stanley water bottles were having a moment before this video, but this has taken it to the next level. And it helped cement this idea that Stanleys are everywhere, even in your burnt up Kia. And I mean, people are fighting tooth and nail to get limited edition versions. Amanda's holding hers up right now. I filled my daughter Emily's Stanley this morning before she went to school. Amanda, how did this happen? What's going on? Well, it all started in 2017. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the trend origin story here goes back to a um, product recommendation blog called The Buy Guide, which is run by three women. It's not a huge, like, hugely influential blog in and of itself, but it has a significant audience that is, like, disproportionately Mormon moms. If you know a bunch about how lifestyle trends move on the internet, especially when it comes to, like, domesticity, home life, things like that, Mormon moms are, like, disproportionately influential, I would say. So, 2017, a blog run by three women recommends Stanley water bottles. <laughs> yes. And this group receives these these products with open arms. They really, really like them. I think there's a couple reasons for that. Um, the, the hydro flasks and swell bottles of the world were already popular when this happened. But the Stanley has a form factor that, while not entirely absent from the market back then, was just not as common. It is, like, really high capacity. It holds 40 ounces. It is tapered at the bottom, so it sits in a car cup holder. And it has a big, easy-to-grab handle, which is fantastic for people with smaller hands. Women more likely to have smaller than average hands. Um, like I have baby hands. When I try to grab like a 30 ounce um, hydro flask, like it, if I'm sweaty, if it's wet, it can be like a little bit hard to like grab onto if it's full. But Stanley, the company, is not new. This is not a new product. No, Stanley has been around for over a century. They hold one of the oldest patents for the vacuum systems that make um, insulated water bottles possible. They have been making um, these sort of like very tough temperature fast products for a really long time. But before this blog came along, their audience was almost exclusively men. They made products for construction workers, for people who work physical labor jobs, people who work outside. The product that people were most likely familiar with before the Stanley Cup went viral is like the sort of green thermos thing that they make. 
So my assistant last year, not this Christmas, but last year, before this all went viral, she got all of her colleagues, like, the modern Stanley Cup. But I had already bitched so much about, like, how everybody was crazy about the Stanley Cup that she got me the green Stanley thermos (laughs) from, like, 1970. And when I get home, I'll take a picture of it to prove to y'all. But that is so funny. (laughs) So, so Vivian, you're, you're a Stanley skeptic, is that right? I just, like, whenever some people are all about something, I have to be all about the opposite. So this company's been around for over 100 years. In 2017, these mommy bloggers posted it, and it just sort of grew slowly but surely. But, like, something in the past six months or so took it to the next level, Amanda. What happened? You know, fast forward 2020, Stanley gets a new marketing executive um, and realizes that, like, it is probably a good idea to orient ourselves toward the market that wants us instead of the market that we've always had and always considered our own. So they realized that, like, there was a huge huge demand among women for a product like this. They started making more interesting colors. They started um, experimenting with textures and finishes and stuff like that in order for this to be something that was, like, fun to look at, fun to carry around, um, and that people might, like, want to collect or something like that. So uh, this woman posted this TikTok of her burnt-out car and the Stanley. Stanley reached out and said, we'll give you a new water bottle and also a new car, which was nice, Um, although smart marketing. I think that whole video was fake. I, I think that that woman... Well, now we're going deep state. I mean, there's like something on that cup would have disintegrated. There's like a plastic top or something. You know, I thought that that was something that somebody, a stunt somebody pulled to like, look at my Stanley. I'm going to get a bunch of followers. I'm going to go viral and I'm going to create a, a career for myself by burning out my car. <laughs> and Maybe her car was already burnt and then she stuck a Stanley in it. That would make more sense. (laughs) What's your theory, Amanda? I... I agree that I don't understand why the plastic didn't melt because, like, of all of the... I have several different types and formats and whatever of water bottles. Some of some I've bought, some I've been given. They're very popular gifts. That's the thing about water yes. bottles is right. often you end up with a couple even if you did not intend to have them. But um, I, I read a firefighter somewhere talking about this. And um, what he said, and I cannot explain this uh, because I uh, am not good at science, but he said that there is something with how thermodynamics work that you would expect in an insulated, you know, beverage container that the ice would stay cold in that situation because, like I said, I something with thermodynamics. Because but science. I, because science. Right. Um, he, he said that, that 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 is an expected reaction if you have this kind of vacuum system keeping your water at temperature. And I've seen other videos of situations where this has happened. I think that there was a video of like a, a Yeti cooler that had been through a a fire. And when you opened it, there was still ice inside of it. So I think that that is, it's a sign that the water bottles and coolers and whatever are working as designed. Um, I do have similar questions to Vivian about why the plastic didn't melt because it is it is not special plastic. This is my problem with a lot of these water bottles, the Hydro Flasks, the Stanleys. They all brag about how well they're able to contain temperature. And to me, they're too good at it. If you put hot coffee into one of these newfangled jugs or cups or whatever, you can't drink that coffee for the rest of the day. It will never cool down. And same with, with, like I put ice and water into a hydro flask and go play tennis. And then I go to drink the water and it like, it hurts my insides. It's so cold. (laughs) (laughs) 
maybe I'm just feeble, but like, are, are these things too good, Vivian? Do you have this problem? I do. I do. I, actually, every morning, the water that I drink first thing um, when I get up is the water that I pour out of my kids' water bottles from the day before, and the ice at that point has finally perfectly melted, and it's like a little bit crunchy. Oh, so you're doing like overnight water. Yeah, this I mean, I pl- I'm just you know thinking ahead. <laughs> I I don't have a problem with this. The first reason being, I don't really drink hot beverages. Like. I drink oh. cold coffee all the time. And the okay. second thing being, I, I am maybe sort of freakishly, um, I, I really prefer like incredibly cold liquids. I want to get like as close to frozen as you can and then take one step off of that. I don't know if that's because I was raised in a hot climate and like that was just always like such a relief when we were kids. But like I, as close as we can get to frozen without being frozen, that's the temperature that I want my water all the time. All right, let's give the spinner another whirl. So Steve Ellis, the founder of Chipotle, is planning to open a chain of fast casual restaurants where all the food is prepared at big central kitchens by humans and then delivered to the actual restaurants in the area. And the restaurants will have three human employees and one robot cooking and assembling orders. And also there's no seating and no register. You order and pay with an app. And to get your food, you unlock a metal cubby with a code on your phone. Vivian, you look wide-eyed. Well, okay, so I just have to speak to that. Last week, I was in Dallas cooking for this event, and the catering facility was in an Uber Eats building. And I get there, and um, there's, like, a counter and a guy that's, you know, giving food to the Uber Eats drivers. Was this a ghost kitchen? Yes. So, they're, like, all along the hallway, there's, like, little, um, you know, kitchens that have their own dish sinks and everything. There's probably 10, 15 of them. Like Uber Eats and other delivery services, they've created these sort of like fronts for restaurants. So you're like in the mood for burritos. You search, where can I get a burrito? And it pops up, oh, Timmy's Burritos. And you order it. And it turns out that's one of 10 restaurants that are all sort of in this little mini factory that is run by Uber Eats. So you were invited to an event and you were inside the ghost kitchen. Yes. Um, I was inside the ghost kitchen, but this catering company that I was working with had rented one of the, you know, pods or whatever. And, you know, immediately I hear this beeping, beeping, beeping. And they're like, oh, yeah, those are the robots. And I'm like, oh, my God. So they, there were two robots going <laughs> up and down the hall all day long, um, like taking food from the individual kitchens up to the front. Uh, because we can't walk up to the front with our food to have it be delivered. And these things, I, immediately I was like, this is so cool. I'm going to take a video for my kids and everybody. And then I was so annoyed by the end of the day because they took up the whole hallway. They make a lot of noise. You know, they just kind of take over the place. Why? Why are we taking the people out of everything? Amanda, what are your thoughts on our new robot overlords? You know, well, I question, first of all, if it would actually make anything more efficient. You know, it's it's not like Chipotle is itself inefficient. Chipotle moves a lot of food very, very quickly. And I'm not sure, like, what kind of marginal return we're going to get on a robot in, like, a central prep kitchen. Well, I'm sure part of their calculation is that if they sell the same amount of food at the same pace and not have to pay as many employees then their margins go up. There are, there's a lot that machines can do. There's a lot that, um, you know, uh, the industrial tools of food prep can can make easier or more efficient. Um, but 
ultimately, I don't see a lot of technology that suggests that any of this stuff can happen without human intervention and without human um, supervision and, and, you know, human employees. And I think that, like, when we assume robots can do all of this, A, there's, like, absolutely no proof that's true. You can see it, you know, every day in your your local CVS, your local Walgreens, where the um, self-checkout machines never work. They're impossible to use. People hate uh, them. They're the worst. They make the employees' jobs worse. They've, they've you know, successfully reduced the number of employees in those locations. But everybody who has to interact with them on any level um, hates it. <laughs> and, like, I think that when we buy into the hype, whether it's about AI, whether it's about other types of like physical mechanization, um, without really, really looking at the details of what it entails and like what it then intends to promise. I don't think there's any reason to believe that these sort of like mechanized fast casual restaurants are going to work a lot better than than self-checkout does right now. And we know self-checkout doesn't work. You need lots and lots of humans to um, to make these systems run. And instead of being people who prepare food, who have skills, who, who gain mastery of things over time, who uh, have useful jobs, you're turning them into people who are supposed to troubleshoot the robot, um, which is like not a useful job. And, and nothing gets done better, you know, it remains to be seen if that means it will even be any cheaper. Coming up ahead of Valentine's Day, we'll talk about a food-related test of true love. Plus, when does it make sense to freeze your toilet paper? We'll find out. Stick around. Ooh, advertisements. Yummy. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool... Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. 
Famous Amos chocolate chip cookies are so iconic that I just say Famous Amos and it's like I can taste it. Each cookie is filled with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. And the word satisfying is very key there because some cookies are crunchy and brittle and I don't like that. But Famous Amos has a deep, tooth-sinkable, satisfying crunch that I know and love. And Famous Amos classic bite-sized chocolate chip cookies are bringing back the original recipe that everyone knows and loves. One perfect bite, everything classic in a cookie. Find Famous Amos cookies anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Hey, before we get back to the show, when I decided to write my cookbook, Anything's Possible, I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it alone. I mean, after all, I never wrote a real recipe in my life. So I hired a team of super talented recipe developers to work with me. And in each episode of The Sporkful this month, we're going to take a few minutes out to feature one of those developers so you can hear their stories and learn more about their contributions to my book. This week, we're hearing from Asha Lupi. I was born in Calcutta, India, but adopted when I was 10 weeks old. So I didn't grow up in a South Asian household. Um, it was just my mom and I. And I started cooking when I was about four years old. I was just in the kitchen with my mom so she could keep an eye on me. And what were some of her specialties? For a good part of my childhood, my mom was on a salt-free diet, which meant that we were utilizing spices a lot. We would make kima a lot because it was highly spiced and I could add salt later, but it was satisfying enough for my mom. If you eat a lot of Indian food, you probably already know kima as a classic dish of spiced ground meat. The details can vary from home to home, but the ground meat is a constant. Asha loved helping her mom cook. And from a young age, she was much more than a kitchen assistant. I started writing a cookbook when I was a very small child. And one of the <laughs> recipes was called Chicken Mix-Up. And it was egg noodles, sour cream, salt and pepper, and shredded rotisserie chicken. And that's it. Mixed together. Maybe uh, butter was <laughs> added in there. I mean, I'll bet that's good. It was. <laughs> when Asha was 12, her mom asked what she wanted to do over the summer. Girl Scout camp or classes at the California Culinary Academy in San Francisco. I think you can guess which one she picked. I was a 12-year-old with adults. Like, it wasn't children's cooking classes. And I ended up doing a lot of, like, stuff by myself during those classes. None of the adults wanted to be my partner. Asha kept at it anyway. The next summer, the cooking school was under new management, and they didn't want to allow a 13-year-old into an adult class despite her experience. One of her teachers from the previous year went to bat for her and convinced the school to let her in. I saw him later in life and was like, thank you. You know, as a 13-year-old girl of color in 
an adult class with all white older adults that was a intimidating space to be in but having someone stand up for me I was like okay yeah I can be here and like someone wants me here that was really an important moment for me Today, Asha works for Diaspora Co., a spice company that imports high-quality, single-origin spices from South Asia. The recipes she creates for them mix the traditional with the more experimental, as in her panipuri two ways, one with a classic potato chickpea filling, the other a more off-the-cuff mango avocado filling. Connecting with South Asian cooking and having that become part of my job, but also having it be a way for me to connect to a different part of myself has been really rewarding. It has been something that I don't think I had as much of growing up. Like, we would go to, like, Diwali celebrations at the, like, local Indian cultural center, and we cooked Indian food because it was one of the many things we cooked. But actually getting to, like, dig deep into it is something that I don't think a lot of people get a chance to do and connect in that way. All of this informs the perspective that Asha brings to the book and to pasta dishes more generally. Pasta in households across America is utilized in so many different ways beyond just the Italian ways that you see in magazines and food media. I want to push beyond what people traditionally see pasta as. One perfect example, Asha pitched a recipe for keema bolognese. As I said, keema is made from spiced ground meat, making it the perfect candidate to be mashed up with the traditional Italian tomato sauce that combines ground meat, wine, milk, and more. When Asha pitched the concept of keema bolognese for the cookbook, I was immediately on board. And when I first tried it, I could not stop eating it right out of the pot. I dropped some off at my neighbor Jess's house. She texted me later and said it was so good she felt like she needed a cigarette afterwards. Anyway, Asha and I collaborated on many more recipes for my book. One of her pasta salads is the dish that Kenji Lopez-Alt, who wrote the book's foreword, says is his favorite of the book, raw heirloom tomato puttanesca with fish sauce and Calabrian chili. Follow Asha on Instagram at From Head to Table and subscribe to her newsletter. She is so talented, you will love all of Asha's recipes. And if you're in the Bay Area, you're going to be able to see Asha live. She'll be joining me on stage at Swedish American Hall on April 28th as part of my book tour. We're going to be talking with Sam Sanders, one of the hosts of the fantastic podcast Vibe Check. Those tickets are on sale now. Remember, for all tour dates, you can go to sporkful.com slash tour. And remember that if you pre-order Anything's Possible now, you'll get an invite to a special Zoom cooking class I'm going to be hosting just for folks who pre-order. We're going to hang out. We're going to chat. We'll cook. We'll eat. It's going to be a lot of fun. You don't want to miss it. If you already pre-ordered, you're also eligible. To get your invite, go to sporkful.com slash book. All right, we're back in the salad spinner. I'm here with Vivian Howard, chef and restaurateur, and Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic. All right, you ready to get back in the spinner? Yep, let's do it. Amanda, you brought a story in for us. What did you want to talk about? Okay, so I am bringing to you a story about Josh Wine memes. I was interviewed by Ali Francis, who's a journalist at Bon Appetit. Um, She wrote a great story for their website about why people, and especially young people online, have sort of latched on to Josh Wine, which is a very middle-of-the-road, very sort of like traditional Northern California brand of red wine. And Um, and the the, the brand is actually called Josh. Oh my God. Okay, I was like, who the hell is Josh Wine? I'm like, (laughs) I was like, if I had my phone, I would be Googling this because I have no idea. But I know Josh. 
the wand. Yeah, yes. The label is very kind of simple and plain, and it's just in big cursive letters, it just says Josh. And so, uh, yeah, Vivian, okay, what's your take so, on Josh? Well, you know, it's wild because I actually drink Josh wine because I live in rural eastern North Carolina, and my grocery store options are a Piggly Wiggly, a Food Lion, and a Walmart. And, you know, Josh is one of the, you know, upper things that they offer. I don't go there like, I'm going to go get my Josh. (laughs) (laughs) It's more like, you know, I don't have anything from elsewhere, and, you know, it's something that's drinkable. But I didn't know, how is it a meme? Is it like, I love me some Josh? Like, what, what is the spirit of it? A lot of it is just sort of like a riff on the fact that there's a wine named Josh. Josh is like such a such a particular name. Like when you say someone is Josh, that is a a white man in his mid thirties who has like a a job that is done mostly on his laptop. We all know a Josh, um, <laughs> uh, and I think that that is sort of funny because it's just the last thing that you'd expect. Like a wine to be named in a situation that we're in right now where like so many products are designed to go viral, designed to make a joke, designed to be funny to you so that you post about them. I think that people have sort of reacted in in an organic way to something that is just like not supposed to be a joke at all, that is that is funny in spite of itself. The wine is so earnest. Like, they are not making a joke at all. You don't think it was intentional? No. I mean, no. How, how, how could you name your wine Josh and expect anything other than the reaction they've gotten? It's been around a really long time. Yeah, and I can tell you that from, you know, the grocery store aisle point of view, one of the reasons that I, like, honed in on Josh was because <laughs> so many of the bottles around it are so silly. You know, it's like Yellowtail, Fat Bastard. It's like, I feel like they're trying to grab my attention based on the branding and not the quality of what's in the bottle. I can't believe I'm saying this about wine at Food Lion. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the Josh label is simple. There are no jokes. There, you know, it's like the most kind of elegant looking thing. And so I think unintentionally it's been doing that since it was on the shelves, like standing out for those reasons. It definitely wasn't trying to go viral in this way. The guy who makes it is very earnest. It's named after his dad. (laughs) Um, Once people started to realize that everyone had encountered this wine, it's the wine that like if you're going to a dinner party that you don't think is going to be like that fun or you don't know what everybody's taste is or you don't know what they're making, like... Just get a bottle of Josh. It's fine. (laughs) Everybody, (laughs) it is the most okay wine. All right, let's tick through a couple more stories real quick before we wrap up. Spin the spinner. There's a new docuseries on Hulu called Super Hot, The Spicy World of Pepper People. It profiles the growers of extremely hot peppers and the people who compete in hot pepper competitions. Here's a clip from the trailer. You think about competitive chili eating. The pressure is immense. It's like a boxing match. And you're going to fight that pepper. And then all of a sudden, boom. One, two, three. Eat that chili! <sighs> Shen has lost the use of her hands. And I should add, in New York, the restaurant Brine created what they call the hottest sandwich available at any restaurant. It's called the DNE, as in do not eat. To get it, you got to book an appointment, specify the type of milk you want to accompany it, and sign a waiver. So these two things seem to be happening in parallel. What do we make of this? Vivian, you want to lead off? You look perplexed. I mean, you know, I 
I, I, I've never understood people who like love to eat things and then talk about how hot it is. You know, it's like so hot and my nose is burning and like, you know, why? Um, and I also like competitive eating is something that I have a, a reaction to. I like judge this uh, pepperoni roll eating contest once and watch people like duck all this pepperoni rolls into crystal light and then, you know, stuff themselves. Like, and then when the timer went off, they just exploded in pepperoni rolls. You know, I don't get it. I don't get it. I eat for pleasure. And but th- th- there is some science to suggest that eating very spicy foods can almost activate systems in your brain that similar to like to, to a high. If you eat a lot of spicy foods, you, like, like with anything that makes you high, you may need more and more of it to keep getting that feeling. Amanda, what are your thoughts? I think that there is a really great book that explains this phenomenon. It's called Hurts So Good. It's by Lee Cowart. And what is it, it's about is why people seek out pain. Because this is something that is uh, a phenomenon that has occurred like across human history, across culture. Like Eating really, really spicy food is a pretty common way to do it. But people do all kinds of stuff that hurts. For some people, the physical sensation of just incredibly spicy food does create this sort of like chemical reaction in their bodies that that they do find pleasing in some way. And also, I think that, like, there is interest in this outside of perhaps people who, who do it at a really extreme level because it's just really experiential. It is, like, very embodied. You are You will never be more in tune with what's happening in your body than when you eat something that is really, really too spicy for you. All, all I'll add is that uh, in this Hulu series, uh, I guess one of the tricks that you learn about for people who take part in competitive hot pepper eating is that they freeze their toilet paper so that oh, it's yeah. really cold before they use it. You can think about that when you go to bed tonight. That's lending <laughs> a lot of credibility to everything I said before. <laughs> All right, spin the spinner. As we approach Valentine's Day, we want to talk about the Internet's latest love test, a food love test. It's called the Orange Peel Test. Let's check out this TikTok. Babe. Yeah? I really want an orange right now. You want an orange, Mm -hmm. like the fruit? Yeah. Um, I don't think we have any oranges. Okay. Um, Do you think you could, like, go get me one and peel it for me? Uh, are you serious? Yeah. Will he bring it to her and peel it for her? According to this TikTok trend, that's the test of true love. Is this a legitimate test of true love, Amanda? I think probably not, like, (laughs) in and of itself. I think it does gesture at something real and that, like, in, in, like, good, healthy, mutually supportive relationships, like, if you express, like, a desire or a need to your partner and it's something that they can fulfill and it, like, isn't difficult for them, then often, like, you know, good relationships are when you hear that your partner wants something and it is something that is easy for you and you're like, oh, I'm just going to do it for him. I don't know if like the orange itself is like a great um, vessel for that for that theory though. Right. Vivian, what do you think? Is this a valid test of true love? Absolutely not. But <laughs> I do think, you know, what she's saying, like, will you go get me something from the other room? Will you get me something out of the fridge? But like, Um, Will you get me an orange? I would prefer to peel it myself because I would like my grubby hands on it rather than yours. I mean, you know, that feels like a weird kind of gesture when, you know, but I do appreciate being able to ask a loved one to go get something from 
for me when I'm very comfortable and them being able to recognize that that's something that they should do. That may be a true, you know, um, look at love. Right. Well, <laughs> later in the video, he says, I, just don't, I don't know how to peel an orange. Which that, I mean, to me, that's a red flag. That's that a major is. relationship red flag, right? There. Can I admit something without anybody getting mad at me? Sure. <laughs> I've never peeled an orange. I don't like citrus fruit. I've never peeled one. <laughs> I'm not mad. I'm just, I'm just, I, I, don't mad. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, yeah. No, I mean, yes, I, I'm not, no, yes. Let's go. I'm, uh, right. I, I, we're, we're, <laughs> we're not judging you, Amanda. We're just surprised. Yeah, like I was the kid at soccer that at halftime when the, the team mom brought out the orange slices, I didn't eat any of them. I just don't like oranges. Well, you should grab one of those little tinies, just the pleasure of separating, uh, you know, a mandarin yeah. or a clementine from its skin is 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 worth it's fun. It's worth it. Yeah, it, it is very <laughs> it is satisfying like... on a tactile level. Yeah. I agree with that. Yes. <laughs> well, that's it for another great edition of the Salad Spinner. This has been a blast. Vivian Howard is an award-winning cookbook author, TV host, chef, and restaurateur in Kinston, North Carolina. Her restaurant that's open two nights a month is Chef and the Farmer. You can find more about her at VivianHoward.com and on Instagram at Chef and the F. And Vivian, what are your two spots in Charleston? Tell folks about those. Uh, Handy and Hot. It's a biscuit and hand pie shop uh, on Wentworth Street. And Lenore, which is a dinner restaurant and stands for the county that I live in, in North Carolina. So don't call there and make a reservation and call it Lenoir. We'll take it anyway, but... Yeah. So it's spelled like Lenoir, like L-E-N-O-I-R. Yes. But it's pronounced Lenore. Got it. Okay. So eat at all the Vivian's restaurants and follow her on Instagram. Vivian, thank you very much. Thank you. And Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic. Find her work on The Atlantic. You can find her on X, as the kids call it now, at Amanda Mull. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Next week on the show, a data-driven restaurant makeover. The Indian restaurant, Udda, had a table that was always underperforming, making less money than the other tables at the restaurant. In this collaboration with our friends at the NPR podcast, Planet Money, we enlist a restaurant design expert to find out if we can turn that losing table into a winner. That's next week. Why wait for that one? Remember that we released two episodes last week. On Monday, I went undercover with the feared New York Times restaurant critic Pete Wells. Then on Thursday, we released our third episode of Deep Dish with Sola and Ham. Sola and Ham look at the surprising origins of the iconic Mexico City dish, Tacos Al Pastor. Turns out the Al Pastor taco has its roots in a place halfway around the world. All those episodes are up now. Get them wherever you got this one. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producer... Andres O'Hara. Editing by... Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Cal from Columbia, South Carolina. And I'm here to tell you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.